0: I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch is scotch scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm-mm-mm.
3: mess with me, I'm one crazy moofoo.
1: This brand is truly exciting and so glad that they are starting to make a positive impact. Little Bean Soapery is a woman-owned small business based in Northeast Pennsylvania. Little Bean Soapery does so much as all products are handcrafted and offer many different things for both men and women. Soaps, scrubs, body butters, bath bombs, solid cologne, and much more. Little Bean Soapery also does things for special occasions such as birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, and special seasonal gift sets, but also let's not forget large orders for party favors by request. The great things about all products is that they are crafted to be nourishing on the skin. If you wish to check them out, please feel free to visit littlebeansoapery.com. Any questions, please feel free to also email Littlebeansopery at gmail.com for custom inquiries and or ask anything else you wish. Tell them that Elena from Crazy Train Radio sends ya.
0: This is Moondog
2: Ed Moretti, 2021, still kicking, still alive, listening to Crazy Train Radio from Hidden Valley Lake, California. And just remember... It's only one step from the jungle to the zoo, baby. Love you all. Take care.
3: Hey, folks. It's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele.
1: And I'm Elena, your favorite host from the Emerald Isles.
3: Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Hello, as I like to steal gimmicks Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages We are here to do another wrestling episode And yes, this one is another snag by Dr. Mike Lano Out of the California territory, as we like to say But before we have him introduce our guest Dr. Mike had asked if he
0: can plug something So,
3: sir, the floor is yours
0: well, it's a couple of things. I don't know if anybody can see this. I just wanted to say, I'll probably be sending you this when I get done reading. I just got it today. little Stevie Van Sant, obviously of the uh, Bruce Springsteen E Street Band, but also The Sopranos. That is a book I can't wait to read. I got my, it's too heavy to bring down here, but I got my copy of Paul McCartney's lyrics. But there's also another good Paul McCartney book out now. It's called The Stories Behind the Songs as kind of a companion, and it just came out like a week before Lyrics did, which is not inexpensive. It's like $90 for two books. I wanna plug quickly, so it's a couple of things. There's three, we don't have that many wrestling magazines left. There's Shukan Pro, Shukan means weekly, out of Japan, slash baseball. So Gong Magazine went bankrupt. The Yakuza alleged scandal some 15, 16 years ago. That's also about the same period George Napolitano, who was senior editor, it wasn't his magazines per se, the Starlogs also went out of business. So we have PWI in the US, which is still going strong. I've worked there for many, many decades as a writer, photographer, but Boxy Lucha, and uh, which is half boxing, half wrestling, like the old forties, Mike Rogers remembers those wrestling magazines. Uh, and there's also Super Astros, there's Tutto Lute in Italy and two in the UK. The oldest is Russell Talk, which was the name of my old cable radio network show. There's Inside the Ropes, which is absolutely terrific, shoot style. All of these are good. I wouldn't be holding it up. New one out of Canada, sorta but not really related to Fightful, the Sean Ross Sap website. That's a big one, and you know, like Mike Rogers in my day, not even in our day, but this 15, 20 years ago, Dave Meltzer was like it. But now there's a million journalists online. There's Busted Open Radio on Sirius XM. Um, Oh, I wanted to plug something else. (laughs) Jonathan is doing something else. I'm uh,
3: looking at the book pile. Go ahead.
0: You're looking at that book pile. Uh, It's Knights of Lights OC. There's a lot of safe where you drive through. And this is the best one I've seen on the West Coast. I'm sure Mike might have some (coughs) in the... Troutdale, Oregon, or Portland, or Eugene, etc. Night of Lights OC was really incredible. I went uh, to that. They have all kinds of specials. Go to nightoflightsoc.com. But you stay in your car. They have a snow flurry area. They have a lot of entertainers this year. I went last year, loved it. But this year, they've got ballerinas. They've got a whole Santa Claus and his elves. So that'll take out... So Night of Lights OC, that'll take out the Noise of snow. Uh, maybe not. I thought it was going to take that noise out. I want to throw a couple of other things. Michael, enjoy this. He doesn't hardly ever get to see my pictures. This is Dutch Mantel in his Memphis prime. Well, his later prime. Okay, I'm going to try to bring Bill Dundee, superstar Bill Dundee to the show. Also, Crowbar, when he was just an indie wrestler, is Devin Storm. This was on a Dennis Coraluso show in 92. He would later dye his hair black, Team with. David Flair, and Daphne is their heel manager around the dying days last year or so, 2000 at WCW. But here's one. I know Mike knows both these gents. Lanny Poffo with the late, great Boyd Pierce. Boyd Pierce, who announced, I mean, for a lot of folks, Paul Bosch, Bill Watts, uh, and I think for some others. And he was unique, like our beloved 60s and 70s TV announcers for wrestling. Very colorful garb he never wore the same jacket twice but mike rogers because i was in I'm just saying i look pretty damn good for a guy in a uh, emergency ward of a hospital uh, with a bleeding lower intestine for like 15 16 hours yesterday into last night i can't find mike's book so mike I, i've known forever and i wanted to actually before we talk about his book for the brunt of the show which is it belongs in everybody's library. It's the perfect holiday gift for yourself. Mike has been a long time. He may still hold the record for ring around the northwest newsletter. Who uh, did it far longer than any of us did any singular newsletters. You know, I know Dave Meltz started uh, what was it, December of eighty-two, or because he was doing California Wrestling Report, which was just basically covering the Roy Shire territory results and stuff in the seventies, but. Um, I I wanted to uh, talk, well, let me just introduce Mike Rogers. So he is a consummate historian on a global level, not just the Pacific Northwest, which he's the consummate expert. He was right up there with J. Michael Kenyon as our top guys. We don't have that many left, Mike. There's uh, uh, George Shire and Tom Burke as our, I would put them at the top of our guru list. You might have some others out of the country or. What have you? But Mike, tell us the name of your book, and let me just let you hawk it because I, for the life of me, I was tearing apart. I haven't had any sleep uh, since Mon- Sunday, leading into Monday, so I apologize for not having your your terrific book. But uh, uh, tell us the title, and and I, I you know, when I first became aware of this. I thought that was cool. Is this your very first hardbound, you know, book book, yes. as opposed to yearbooks and all the things, all the Work that you put together for results, and your newsletter, and so many other projects. But tell us the uh, derivation of this. How did this all come about?
2: Sure. Well, I do just happen to have the book, and I'll hold it yes. up here. <laughs> and it's uh, the name of the book is "Excitement in the Air: The Voices of Northwest Wrestling," and the name of the book came from Alani Main prom- Promo, probably in the early '70s, and he was. Um, talking up a match that was coming up the next week. And at the end of the interview, he said, Frank, Frank Bonham, the announcer, you got to be here next week because there's going to be excitement in the air. And that became his catchphrase. And then it also more more or less became the catchphrase of Portland wrestling. And uh, so that's that's where the, the title of the book came from. Um, it says Volume
0: One. So, are you already at work on a Volume Two?
2: Yes. Um, so, these interviews came from my um, bulletin called Ring Around the Northwest, and you mentioned it. It ran for thirty years, from 1983 to 2013, and I started doing some interviews about ten years into the into the bulletin, and um, I I would bet that I probably have a hundred interviews, you know, a lot of them are with local guys, but a lot of legends as well. And, um, I think that we probably have enough interviews for three volumes and, and still to be compelling. And we tried to talk a little bit, do we spread them out? You know, do we front load it and make the first one really good? And, uh, I think for certain the first two are going to be definitely equal in quality. Um, We can talk about the second one in a little bit, but I'm really, really happy with how the first one came out and the people that we have in the first one. You know, we wanted to get a couple uh, wrestlers who are current. So we've got uh, Brian Danielson and Kyle O'Reilly. You know, that'll catch the interest Mm. of current fans. Um, And then Legends, we have Lou Don Leo Jonathan, Pampero uh Red Bastine, um, Ed Moretti. A lot of them were um, national stars. Some of them were a little bit more focused in the Northwest, in Portland. Um, Beauregard.
0: Eddie was a global traveler. We just had Eddie on not that long ago, and you and I have been friends of Eddie's forever. I first met him around 1970, and he and uh, Roland Alexander be at the back of the Cow Palace when I'd come up, fly up from L.A., uh, they they were like half watching wrestling and half trying to pick up girls while Meltzer was sitting there, you know, detail-oriented on the match results, time, etc. cetera. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out, hold that book up again because it, it has one of the greatest shots of somebody we love, Apache Bull Ramos on the on the the left with the horns. And he was a major, major guy in Los Angeles, but, you know, obviously big star. He had the last match with Bruno at the old Madison Square Garden before they put up the second one, which is the one now.
2: That was a a really interesting, that was a really interesting interview. Um, I had, I didn't call him cold. I had talked, I had uh, emailed him, I believe. And Whenever I try to interview somebody, I try to add one little nugget or something that will catch their interest. And I I had a great one for for Bull Ramus. And it was my wife and his daughter played together when they were young, young children. And I I think with that little piece of uh, information, it was he it opened him up a little bit more to to have a conversation with me. And also that interview was interesting because I usually lay leave an hour, hour and a half for for an interview. And the afternoon that I interviewed him, I had to go to the veterinary and I had to take my dog to the vet, but it was like two hours down the afternoon. And we visited and I kind of finished up my interview and and he was really enjoying himself. And he said, Ask, ask me more, ask me more. Uh-huh. And and uh We visited another half an hour and uh, then then finally it got to the point where I said, I'm so sorry, but I have to go, you know, and and uh, he did such a good job and uh, he was so fun to talk to and he had a lot of stories.
0: As I pass to Jonathan, I want to say this, too, to your credit, because. Back then, I got a shoot interview with Lou Albano when he was drunk around 75 backstage at Madison Square Garden when he just took over managing the blackjacks, Lanza Mulligan, and shoot interviews did not happen. And Mike got a lot of it. He got a lot of, uh, you know, things. He was like the observer of the Pacific Northwest, and he got in a lot of trouble, took heat at times, because he was trying to be, you know, a true journalist and reporting stuff. And whether it was on some of the horrors, you know, we were all aware of with the Oregon and Washington state commissions or other stuff, you know, breaking KF or whatever. And the promoters, I think it was more of the promoters, not the boys, but it was a difficult to get the boys or anyone in the biz to openly speak. And then Mike sometimes paid the price for it. Uh, so I want to start to Jonathan because he doesn't know you like I do. And before we go, I do not want to forget to talk about when Owen Hart and his WWF his best friend roadmate Louis Piccoli picked us up December fourteenth, nineteen ninety five, at Calgary Airport. Blizzard. You and I couldn't see. Owen. Remember, he cursed and swore and he drove like a maniac. But he got us, you know, to the hotel and wherever we had to go, etc. And I don't know how he did it, but it was like it was I, I'll treasure that because we lost both guys. And right. I know you do. I'm sure you do. And right. That was so funny because we hooked up and we. I wanted to hook up with you because we were like, you know, the non-performers coming in there. But Jonathan, let me throw it to you.
3: Well, besides the newsletter that Mike had a uh, reference there. And before I make sure I have this correct, because I tried to pull up some information about it. Would it have been around the time frame that you started yours, Mike, when Doctor Mike had uh was wrapping up his fan uh fanzines? I guess you would call them back in the day.
0: Well, no, yeah. What year, Mike, did you start? Because I first did an international chic fan club in the '60s. Then most know me from running the last incarnation of Fred Blasi's fan club with John Arizzi, when my boss in the L.A. LaBelle territory, Jeff Walton, had to give it up. And then at the same time, I uh, did the fan club for the Tolis Brothers, the International John and Chris Tollis Brothers fan club. But that was early 70s. And then I stopped at, in 78. When, so Jonathan probably wants to know, when, when did you start Ring Around the Northwest? Maybe did you have a newsletter before that?
2: No, I, I didn't have a newsletter before that. I helped out with uh, a good friend of mine, Ken Hamlin, Ring Around the World. And then it was kind of a sister publication with that. And we started in May of
3: 1983. Well, with that being said, and I know Dr. Mike had mentioned about having a shoot interview with Lou Albano, and that's just hard to believe that he was not drinking, but, you know.
0: To alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems
3: but at least from what I've heard, but how did folks treat you with what you were trying to do with startup back then in 83?
2: Well, for probably about 10 years, I didn't have any interviews. It was just a very, excuse me. It was just a very small three page bulletin um, with my thoughts on, on local wrestling. When I got to the point w- to have interviews. Um, I had met Dr. Mike at Dean Silverstone's reunion and there was so many of the wrestlers around, um, when we went, went to those reunions and I, I got to be a little bit friendly with some of them. And that really opened up the door where I was able to, you know, make some, make some acquaintances and, and they knew me well enough to where, um, they felt comfortable to do an interview. A lot of times when you do an interview, I've found that you kind of have to see how open they're going to be and how comfortable they're going to be. And that kind of dictates the direction that you can take the interview. Um, I have a really good um, example. Stan Stasiak, who's in this book, um, he was on a hotline that Sandy Barr had set up that normally you would just call to find out the lineups for the matches. And then Stan was on this hotline for a couple hours a week. And so I thought, well, I'll call, up, call him up and see if I can you know, have a short little interview with him. And I, I called him and explained what I was doing and asked him a lot of questions and, and it was going fine. And I had saved one question that I really, really wanted to know. And it was. Can you tell me about the night that you won the title, um, over over Pedro? You know what what was it like, and and how did you find out? You know, we're, now we've just gone in. We're we're totally breaking kayfabe. And he paused, and I paused, and he paused a little bit longer, and he said, "Well, I I won the title, and it was just like okay, you know, and you got to respect him for." for protecting his business. And we went on, it was, I was disappointed because I really, really wanted to know the answer, but, and it's just, you just have to balance it and as to add the direction of each interview, how it's going to go.
3: Exactly. And I, I respect them for it. Cause I only was part of a uh, press junket years ago with TNA. And even though the cattle's been out at a barn per se, you know, at that part for a long time. I respected Chris Daniels at the time, staying in character for that four minute, four or five minute deal. But yet when I went on to talk to him, I guess a year or so later when he left the company, you know, just like us, you know, having a conversation. But I respect for what he was doing at the time, doing that junket. Oh yeah, absolutely. And sidebar, because I stepped out of view of the screen, but I could still hear with these lovely, uh, Wi-Fi earphones. With the two of you, uh, it sounds like, and I won't get into Dr. Mike's stuff, it almost sounds like I need to crack open this uh, bottle of virus whiskey (laughs) that I got for the first night of Hanukkah. Good for you. Well, I won't say it was for my niece and nephew because they're not old enough to purchase liquor, but mom and dad bought it for them. But that's a whole (laughs) other... (laughs) <laughs> Mike uh, Dr. Mike do you have something else you'd like to bring up because before I let you do that I was curious to know with Mr. Rogers and I'm not talking of one from Pittsburgh it's funny you know it could be a mind trick here with two mics on the line but I know you were in the northwest uh, territory for the most part with Don Owens and everything else like that How was Don Owens for you? And obviously there are stories about Elton as well, but how did he treat you and your dealings with him, if you had any dealings with him?
2: The only uh, dealing that I really had with Don was during the time when he was going to promote his big 60th anniversary show. I had been sending him the bulletin and I wanted to have an interview with him. Now, in my mind, I pictured myself going down to Eugene and and we'd be walking along his cattle farm and bonding over all this all the um, wrestling memories and so I called him up and I I'd, I'd been sending him the bulletin and I greeted him I said hello and he said you're the one who's been sending me that goddamn bulletin <laughs> and uh, I'm like, "Oh, this is not going to go as well as I pictured." And uh and uh I went on, he goes, "Well," he goes, he goes, "Just send me send me your questions." And to his credit, he he answered them. He sent answered them and sent them back. And that interview is in the first first book here. And uh so I appreciate, you know, that he took the time to actually answer those questions.
3: Well, again, and I'm sorry for doing this, but before I pass back to Dr. Mike, I'm curious to know, because I know you living in that area, but also Dr. Mike being the historian that he is, being from Northern California at the time and everything, what was it about at least Don Owens that commanded such respect? And the reason I say that and have heard about it because was Roddy Piper always respected the guy and he for a long time wouldn't work in that territory when things went national and everything else like that. What was it about that respect that Don had?
2: You know, as I look through all the interviews, you know, there's a majority of the wrestlers who really have kind things to say about Don. They all say he was fair on the payoffs, um, and he, he treated them well. Um you know, I would say 80%, you know, there's a few who, who weren't happy with their, with their situation or, or whatever happened to them in the Northwest, but the majority of them did really think a lot of Don Owen um, and they respected him. And that's really unusual in wrestling.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Portland wrestling had such a tradition. Um, you know, it went on for 60, 70 years and everybody in Portland, even if you weren't a wrestling fan, you knew when the show was on. You knew some of the top wrestlers that were in the area. It was just ingrained in the community. And um, one one thing that really helped helped uh, solidify that for me, I just went on a Facebook site that said, it was not a wrestling site. It was a Portland memories site, and I posted a little picture of my my book. And there was more response on that site than even the wrestling sites, because everybody's got a story. I live down the, down the road from Lonnie, Maine, or I saw Tony Bourne in the restaurant or uh, Bobby Jaggers used to come to my grocery store. Everybody's got a story. And, you know, within a few days there was a, a hundred or over a hundred comments on Every per, every person had a, their small story, and that's what it what it is. It was just such a tradition in Portland. Dr. Mike.
0: Oh, everybody went through there. There were so many guys that finesse there, and that's where, uh, according to Maurice Vachon, that's who named him Mad Dog. Was promoter Don Owen. There's a million, and I love talking to the boys. Even asking Eddie Moretti, you and I, Jonathan, uh, asked him about the uh, the the boys doing work shoots so they'd get that extra money from elton owen don's brother but they were worked and elton thought they were legit shoots he was a mark for that stuff um a couple of things mike why don't you hold up the book too and tell us where so we don't forget or we hammer it in where can people get it hold it up again excitement in the air it's got that magnificent cover Apache bull ramus dutch savage on the other end don leo jonathan Luthes. where can folks get it uh, you can get
2: it on Amazon. A um, uh, funny story about that. Uh, we worked with John Cosper of Eat, Sleep, and Russell. And uh, we edited it and finished it and sent it off to him. And I was really naive about what would happen next. Uh, you know, I figured once once John got it, it would be about three months or so, whatever he had to do. And uh, the next day I come out and I kind of glance and it's on Amazon for sale. And um, so that was, I really hand it to John. You know, that's the part that I would have no idea about. And, uh, but its it's been neat. I've heard a lot of good comments. And uh, it's funny when you go and you look at it on Amazon, there is a little section at the very bottom and it'll say on that second day, it was number two in wrestling books. And uh, so now I'm, I am, Just addicted to see where it's at you know it'll go up to a number hundred and then and i'm laughing because i i'll say like did one person buy the book and that drives it down you know 50 spaces and it's it's kind of funny to to think about but yeah it's it's a lot of fun to just to go on there and see it it's on amazon
3: could drive yourself nuts though looking at the rankings though right oh yeah yeah it drives yourself crazy (laughs)
0: When can we? When do you think you might be done in offering Volume Two of the 3 volumes so far set?
2: Well, the let me just tell you who I think that we will have: <clears throat> um, Rick Martel, Mad Dog Vachon, John Tolos, Ivan Koloff, Billy White Wolf, Bad News Allen, Bulldog Brown, Norman Charles, Fritz von Goring, Dory Funk, Davey Richards for a current. Current person, <clears throat> um, definitely Buddy Wayne, and maybe some new material from Nick Wayne, who's his son, who's really starting to make. Oh, he's
0: up. a big, huge star. He's going to be global.
2: He's going to be. He's going to be huge. Um, Ed Francis. There's the second. The
0: promoter, the god of uh, Hawaii, big. Uh, what was the promotion? Was it Big Time Wrestling, or what was the name of it? Uh, I think it was Big Time. Just like Shire, because those two worked together, then they weren't quite together. But he would send him uh, talent as did you know Portland would send over uh, Lonnie and uh, tough Tony Bourne, and uh, and Roy would send over. I mean, I, I even at the Cow Palace. Over at the HIC, which is now Blaisdell, Honolulu International Center, where I shot a couple of cards. Those cards were star-studded, like 72, 73. They were incredible. Guys going back and forth to Japan. But Shire would send over Ray and and Pat. And sometimes they would team, as they did at the Cow Palace, with Fred Blassie, you know, three heels. Not in the main event, but maybe something underneath. I always talk about that card I I shot that uh, was Terry Funk Sheik, in a uh, out, out of the ring, you know, false count anywhere bloodbath. AWA champions, Nick and uh, and Ray, Bachwinkle and Stevens, defending against the then, and he brought his tri-wf title, Pedro Morales, and Bobo Brazil are Jackie Robinson. I mean many. There were guys before Bobo, but yeah, you know, there was nobody. He was quite- the
3: guy that really broke through a lot of levels though
0: Yeah, I mean, some of his predecessors or the great Luther Lindsay etc or shag thomas later on they weren't quite the national guys and i think john cosper is it john cosper's got that book who was the original color barrier breaker in the 40s mike i can't recall Uh, his name now he was such a legend not john henry who was the guy jim mitchell yes yeah the black cat jim mitchell who's total total legend i hope people will read that book or just google and learn about him because we do want to celebrate those guys. I mean, for the TV era, really, the mid to late 50s, early 60s, it would have been, at least in my book, I don't know if Mike agrees, Bobo, Sailor R. Thomas, and these guys kind of were in lots of pairings together for both uh, uh, in Chicago at uh, uh, Marigold, Fred Kohler, and then for Vince Senior and you know Goldust, et cetera, but they're Bobo, uh, Sailor R. Thomas, Dory Dixon, Sweet Daddy Siki, Bearcat Wright was not in that group, but those guys, you'd often see like uh, Art Thomas and Dixon and Siki. This was when Seeky was a baby face before he dyed the hair of blonde, moved to Toronto and became a, a real great heel. Uh, and on Steve, many videos. But shows. Um,
3: Let me throw this name in there too. And I, I know he m- made his name in the South, but where would uh, Ernie Ladd fit in there?
0: Well, well, one of the greatest heels, though, white, black, no matter the color, Ernie Ladd, I don't know if Mike got him there, but uh, I saw him in New York, his first stint, uh, and got audio from John you know, we, would, we didn't have VHSs then, so Mike, and uh, probably like me, in the 70s, early 70s, we would tape trade audio cassettes. I had people sending me from Hawaii AWA, Detroit, everywhere. And, and the territories, the two competing ones in Montreal, the Ruchos International, La Laloute, and Vachon's-backed Grand Prix. So I get the audio of the whole shows. We didn't even have, I mean, until the first Super Betamax came came out. But Ernie Ladd, wherever he was, but he came into LA. Actually, was a face in LA around 63. He had a match with Luthez, as he did, I think, in Houston and maybe some other territories. Maybe even in Mike's... North, upper northwest but lad when he came in to take the title from john Tolis, we had at that time three killer heels killer kowalski who was a real i mean he was just so amazing there in la for us late well early 72 he came in the very first show of 1972 uh billy graham who debuted his superstar look because as mike remembers he was still wearing, wearing the leather chaps In San Francisco for Shire for, you know, that whatever it was, 14 months he was there and teaming with Pat uh, until Pat turned face and all of that stuff. Lars and uh, Paul DeMarco, Lars Anderson, Paul DeMarco became, you know, the next batch of heel tag champs for Roy Shire. But so we have Ernie Ladd coming in after and at the same time, all those guys together. And they did some six mans in small towns uh, with Killer Kowalski and superstar Billy Graham. You know, and that's when uh, Ernie Roth as Abdullah Farouk was there with Sheik, even had a match with uh, John Tolis and Fred Blassie as Baby Faces in 72 in Bakersfield. I think it's Strelick Stadium against uh, the Sheik and Abdullah Farouk. But, I mean, Ernie lad the promos, all of that stuff, wherever he was in the 70s, he would typically, it was a new territory, he'd come in in his street clothes, destroy a jobber if you go and look one of the few places you can see on youtube is when he destroyed a young terry gordy then named terry mecca for eddie einhorn's iwa which went head-to-head with both vince's TriWF starting in 75 and also uh, sam munchik the nwa i haven't even told mike a lot of these stories because i was there to shoot all of his uh, uh, roosevelt stadium outdoor shows he couldn't get into madison square garden Ernie Ladd had two top title matches after the Moscaris title offense against Ivan Koloff, who then quit the promotion after the main event in the rain over pay. And then Ernie Ladd took over as the main event against Emil Moscaris. But they'd already had a series of matches for the America's title in L.A. Ernie Ladd, one of the greatest. Mike, any thoughts on Ernie Ladd? Did he come up there?
2: He never came to Portland, but I've got a great story that you just kind of touched on. In 1972, I came to Disneyland. But I made sure that I saw the LA uh, uh, TV show, and on the show that I saw, Ernie Ladd was gonna face Mill Moscarius on the the next big show. So, on the TV show, they had fans holding up pictures of Mill Moscarius, and it drove Ernie crazy, and he did the foam at the mouth thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and,
1: uh,
2: yeah, that's a memory that I'll I'll always remember. Well, so Bell
0: did that. He, he the first time he did this with the the masks though. With the there were masks for fans, like a, you know, cheap cardboard with a rubber band around it. He did it for Blassie as ultimate God of Baby Faces once he turned face in L.A. against Tolas before their Coliseum stuff, and and to turn back it was like seeing people with 3D glasses on in the 50s or 60s. Everybody had a blasty mask on, driving John Tolis crazy. Well, they did that with Mosca. I think they had two matches because Ernie Ladd's title defense is the America's title. The first one, after he beat Tolis for the title, uh, John as a face was uh, Boba Brazil. And then Pedro Morales going to, to all Japan for Baba. He comes in as Tri-WF title. Like, why would he be interested in this little regional America's title? But... Uh, but the, yeah the moscaris that was kind of magic because moscaris was still selling before he became the no sell dude and uh, they, they were just great and the the stuff they did in the iwa but mike has been a part of a lot of stuff i was really jealous i wanted to come up there because one thing i haven't talked to mike verbally about this mike did the best coverage of tanya harding she was going to be a heel manager for art bar and before I let you get into that, so later on, I had the babysitter at a number of goofy conventions, like the total worst fiasco I've seen since, well, ever. And I'm talking from 1966 to current that I've ever seen 2007 at the Cow Palace, the Russell Fan Fest by the husband and wife team who were, they claimed to have been from Oregon or something. And the guy... They were BS artists. They fled, the husband and wife, it was a three-day convention. Night number two, they fled with a cash box meant to pay all the wrestlers the next day and all the MMA guys like Don Fry, UFC legend. It was utter chaos. It was uh, a mess. And uh, uh, anyway, but uh, oh, I had to babysit Tanya there at her uh, at her autograph booth and not a lot of people were coming, but she was still at her, primo prime she was i think i uh, forget which city she lived out of uh, oregon but what happened with that did she end up managing or she was she cut back on what she would actually do you know she wasn't a typical valet for our uh, love machine bar another guy i want to i'll shut up in a second i spent so many times on the road with art bar and eddie guerrero in mexico city and stuff art was one of the greatest. I know, a little controversial, but I was friends with him through the end. You might have been super close. Was not a nicer guy. I was there with him for all of uh, Ron uh, Scholar's IWA, where he purchased AAA shows, brought him first to LA Sports Arena, and then uh, I had I replaced his PR guy. I was already doing his, pro, his programs and his photographer, as I was for Eddie Einhorn, but uh, he flew me to Chicago early to promote that event, and then New York. And the funny thing was there was a valet with the angel, the virgin princess who would later be a manager in ECW. One of her best friends was also, she was a rat and she claimed that Art Bar got her pregnant at that New York felt forum, you know, that ancillary building to Madison square garden show. We never knew it because I helped start for with um, Jesse Barr, a, a when Art died, which was really hit a lot of us hard, a, a college fund as I had for Jeff Goodish when Frank died. But anyway, tell us a little about Art, your thoughts on him, such a great guy, just always a blast. I mean, he and Eddie Guerrero had Sherry Martel managing him when she was out of work from both you know, well, before she went to WCW, she was out of work. And I have all these crazy, insane pictures. I'll, I, I should send or show both of you guys. I'm, I don't have access to them right now. Uh, they're upstairs. But um, and, and just we'd all go drinking after, and they were so much fun together. But tell us about that and the Tanya Harding stuff. Did she? She was supposed to manage Val-Am, but it didn't quite happen a hundred percent as you would have with a celebrity valet. What went on, Mike?
2: Right. Well, they had. Um... It was a Sandy Barr promotion. I think it was after Don Owen had folded up and they were going out and just going to try to have a a big show. If if I remember right, it was Art and Eddie and Conan. Uh, Ray Mysterio was on the card. Um, uh, Billy Jack was on the card. They had a kind of a convoluted six person tag. Uh, I think Jesse Barr was, was in there as well. Um, so, a lot of big names and a few guys that were in Portland Wrestling at the time. Um, and they had signed Tanya Harding to um, be a valet. But then there was a little bit of uh, uh, controversy because the rules said that they couldn't, she wasn't licensed. So, she couldn't actually step into the ring. She did a little publicity for them and then she walked them down a ramp towards the ring. But then couldn't get into the ring. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did get a really, really nice picture. And that was at the height of her popularity. And I think TMZ was there. And it, and it was really a, kind of a sad thing because the publicity that ran for that show, the, the, I think the show was on a Sunday and the publicity of the, the TV show was on a Friday. And it was the same night as the OJ chase. And I think that really, really affected their publicity because a lot of people were turned in into the onto the OJ thing. So yeah, it for the quality of show and the quality of wrestlers that they had, it didn't draw very well. And uh, but it was it was a
0: well, it was huge newsworthy because it was on the Associated Press newspapers around the world because she was like the planet's biggest heel. She right. still looked like Tanya Harding. I bring this up because of the. You know the fan fest and things where I, I was friendly with her because uh, I was doing PR for the boxing guy right in Oakland. She was to headline a main event women's boxing match at the Oakland Arena, the indoor one adjacent the outdoor one. Sort of like the, I think the situation in Philly of a you know fantastic indoor arena, fantastic historic outdoor. They did in the day. I might be wrong, but so I'm with her in the dressing room and stuff. I never did get a good interview out of her. So I hope you got some kind of great interview out of her. Cause I never, she was not well-spoken later on. Her brain was a little messed up from all the stuff, but she pulled out at the last minute and snuck out of the building, held this guy up. She'd already gotten paid. You heard this one, didn't you? It was, it was a big deal. And I emailed you about it at the time. I go, oh my God, this poor guy ate it, had to refund so many people. She just walked out. She, they replaced her. her opponent got injured, if I remember right. And they put in a replacement that she and her management approved, but then Tanya saw her uh, sparring and said nope and <laughs> didn't fight. And it was a fiasco. And I think that was the last attempt that anyone had at trying to. So, did you ever get a good interview with her? Or?
2: No, no. I just got that one really nice picture. And that was a beautiful I, shot. Yeah, I never met her or anything.
0: Well, when you talk about uh, Jesse Barr for maybe later WWF fans that hopefully will purchase and enjoy Mike's Bible, the book one of a three Bible series to this point. Hopefully there's a fourth. Uh, He was Jimmy Jack Funk when Terry, I forget what that situation was, Terry left. And then they paired him with Dory Jr. who they called Haas, which was so insulting. I hate these name things. You got a guy that's absolute legend of the planet in Dory Funk Jr. Don't change the guy's name and, and maybe honor the Barr family for all their history. You know, there's a lot of different elements there. Uh, but uh, so any other history or thoughts on uh, uh, Tanya before I move to uh, some other things I want to throw out?
2: No, I, I never had any interaction with her.
0: Oh, I, I'm going to uh, try to send you a link. I've been close with uh, Pempero furpo's daughter, Mary, and her brother in San Jose. I was close to Ferp. Uh, Went with him and one other uh, brought him to Ray Stevens' funeral, which was at, uh, you know, Teresa Thies' ex-wife who took him back in to take him to his doctors when he left the Midwest. And he was, you know, he had uh, lung cancer and stuff from all the years of smoking and drinking and a lot of stories there. But anyway, so uh, took FERP to that and then uh, we went to a number of things and I tried to stay close with FERP. who was probably one of the sweetest, nicest, most genuine guys, as Mike knows, right. uh, really, and did legit speak not just seven, not eight, but nine languages. He was at the end trying to learn Japanese. I He was one of the guys who gave me a shoot interview because he remembered me from LA. You know, he had a historic time in LA, summer of 74, where he beat Ernie Ladd with El Garfio, the claw, for the America's title. He came in if they had no video of him. The Sheik hadn't sent video. Now, he was selling the Sheik fireball in his eye in Detroit. So that's why he came into L.A. for us for about seven, eight months. And uh, on this big international card that they were billing as a $50,000 tournament. That was bullshit. But it was uh, the main event actually atop that was Inoki Sakaguchi against Pat Patterson and Johnny Powers for the international tag titles renamed The New Japan titles, they were basically Johnny Power's tag straps. And then because the IWGP singles title was originally Johnny Power's NWF belt that he dropped to Noki uh, when that promotion was going south with promoter Pedro Martinez. But uh, they had never paired before. So you talk about a phantom title change. This was a phantom tag thing. They'd never tagged before, but LaBelle bills them, you know, at Anoki's request as the international tag champions. And at the very first Cauliflower Alley, when we moved it from LA to Vegas in 2000, Powers came to his one and only one. I drag him over to Pat Patterson to pose with a photo I took of them together, you know, with these tag straps that they were given by the New Japan officials, probably Inoki himself. I shot him in the locker room. So they were given them, even though they never won them, and and they drop them that night, so they're one night champs, which is insane. But I, I give this photo, it's eight by ten that I blew up of mine of them in '74, uh, and I have Pat and Powers hold it in uh, 2000, and and later, you know. So I took a ton, as much as I could, and uh, and then after Pat, who I was pretty close to, came up to me and he goes, Matt, who the fuck? Or he goes, Mike, who the fuck was that guy? you <laughs> couldn't even recall johnny powers who was
1: you know, a pretty damn big name
0: yeah he was a glamour boy like jack briscoe didn't have his ability but used the same type of figure four and uh, you know had a history in awa and all this stuff um so it's like i'm sure you you know i don't think there's a lot of bogus stuff going on in the don owen territory and you covered many more territories than that and there's sander kovacs history I'm sure in one of these books you'll get into because you're the ultimate expert people should go to on that. Uh, and and uh, even Dutch being part of the promotion. And, and didn't Stasiak have a hand in stuff, of course?
2: I think I think Stan, Stan, at least he did some announcing for sure. He did some announcing for them. But Dutch was heavily involved in promoting.
0: Oh, here's a, a Dutch story. Because I think you got one of the few interviews with him. He was a definitely one of those guys didn't like to break KFG really nice guy. When I started sending him shots of him coming down, I think Shire was the one that sent him, not Don, but Shire sent him because he was in and and working a bit. I don't know if against Pat as a heel when Pat first turned face uh, with the Billy Graham stuff and all of that. But uh, Dutch came into LA soon after both so, Fred Blassie turned babyface in 1970 after a, a three cage match series spaced out over two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. And the very last one, Ernie Roth, Abdullah Farouk, the Grand Wizard, and Tri WF was above the ring in one of those tiny, what they called a weasel cage. And, and she finally dropped clean to Blassie. It was a battle of the heels. And then Blassie challenges Rocky Johnson and says, Look, I want to have a clean match, show, you know, in more or less words, I'm a baby, new babyface now. And it was like an hour Broadway, and they, they really were doing holds and stuff. And, um, and, and the first, uh, one of the first opponents that Blasi had is the new, and meant the, the audience just was so into Blasi in LA. You know, the, the greatest heel, you know, that old adage when they turn face, it, it can be big money. And it was. And the first guy he started defending the title against was Dutch Savage. And so when I handed Dutch or gave him some of these photos, he remember he kept he was going to come to Dean Silverstone reunions and he kept canceling out at the last minute. So I so I got friendly with Dutch after sending him those shots. He was very grateful. And I sent him some stuff of him teaming with, I think it was Grizzly Smith. What was that old tag team, the Dutch? Uh, Luke Brown. Okay, Luke Brown, the other one of the uh, the uh, those Alaskans, and I should say when you mentioned Norman Charles Frederick earlier, or Norman Frederick Charles, he was part of not the fabulous kangaroos, the royal kangaroos. Right. Um, but so Dutch, I, I was nagging Dutch for many months. And I told you about this. Dutch said he would finally come to Cauliflower Alley, and he was going to bring an ailing Bull Ramos, who he thought Bull would have a good time seeing. I mean everybody, because in those days and. Uh, the late 90s in L.A. I mean, everybody was there. Pepper Gomez and everybody. The original Paul Diamond, who had quite the history with you guys. And Dutch, right a couple of weeks before it, he gives me the cancellation call. He goes, I found out that Piper and Wiskowski and Rogers are going to be there. Uh, or,
2: uh, uh, Rose.
0: Uh, Rose. <laughs> and he goes, I don't want to be around those drug addicts. And he bailed. And I, I, I was so close. You know, I thought, oh, this is going to be so great. And we had an extra award that we were going to give Dutch and Bull if he came. I thought, oh, that'd be so awesome because these guys are total legends. And really, I mean, these are the guys, if you're going to do uh, whatever these bullshit WWE Hall of Fames, come on, give those guys something. You know, where they, they just mention them and there's not even anybody from the family there. They spend maybe 30 seconds on their career, something like that. I mean, they truly belong in in all the halls of fame. Uh, Dutch Savage, such an incredible heel. Um, Anyway, let me, uh, I'm going to shut up, throw back to Jonathan and let you plug the book before we go one more time. But an incredible book. We're talking with Mike Rogers. That's spelled R-O-D-G-E-R-S. So there's an extra D right before the G in Mike's name. Uh, The king of wrestling history. And uh, Jonathan, let me shut up. The mouth of the South LA is shutting up.
3: (laughs) Always tell you that's never an issue, and I appreciate sitting back and learning. But I'm curious to know guys, been telling stories and everything else like that. But I'm curious to know, being that Mike grew up and did a lot for the Northwest Territory there, if or I shouldn't say if, but who was his favorite uh, wrestler growing up and really got him hooked into the business?
2: I definitely think it would have been Lonnie Maine. Lonnie Maine he just was—he just was such a, a character, and and uh, uh, both as a as a heel and a baby face. But I saw more of him as a baby face as as the years went along. Uh, he he definitely was my favorite. What was it about him that really helped you? I think I think it was just you never knew what he was going to do. Um, and I, I think he didn't know what he was going to do. I can remember one time in Portland. Portland was an old bowling alley. And in the center uh, of the arena is where they, they set up the cameras and they'd bring the wrestlers up to do interviews as well. And it set up above the floor. And one time Lonnie grabbed onto a cable or, or something and he swung out you know, I don't know how far he swung. It was what I was saw it on TV and he slipped and he fell. And Tony, Tony Bourne was doing the interview with him. And, and Tony's just looking out at him and, and Tony would say something like you big dummy, you know, what are you, what are you doing? And, and then it just shows Tony looking down like he had fallen and, and uh, <laughs> you just never knew what, what he was going to do. Um I remember one time his line was, uh, I got to call my uncle. I got to call my uncle. Hugh (laughs) Maine. He works at a society. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah.
3: Lonnie. Lonnie was the best. Well, as Dr. Mike had mentioned, let's get another plug in for for the book, which hopefully will be a great three-part series. That is for sure. It is called, excitement in the air so it is the voices of northwest wrestling so i know sometimes self pitches can be good and bad or difficult to do i should say but besides listening to us here tell stories and whatnot why do you think people should get the book off amazon.com
2: i think um the most compelling thing about the book is there's there's 27 different interviews and even if you've been a wrestling fan your entire life, there's going to be some voices in this book that you've never heard from before. Um, I think several of them. This may be the only interview that you know of this style that they have ever done. And so that's why I'm I'm really proud of that. I think Dutch Savage and Bull Ramus and and uh, you know even Don Leo Jonathan. I think Don Leo's done some other things, but but um, you know it's just they all have done a great job, you know, and focused on on the Northwest, their career in the Northwest, and uh, you know I, I think if even if people have done a lot of reading, there's going to be some unique material in this book that and and from people that they've never heard from before.
3: Doctor Mike, did you uh, have something you would like to bring up to help close out?
0: don leo jonathan my opinion greatest big man wrestler ever I'm, i think mike might agree with me yeah i'm not sure but i think you know because of all the bs in wrestling he was the first guy to body slam andre uh, maybe a good decade plus some years before the hogan thing where vince claimed that no it was don leo there might have been one other guy i can't harley
3: think. was it harley in a
0: I don't know. Mike, is it your understanding that Don Leo was the first guy to do it in the Montreal uh, Grand Prix when he was Jean Ferret? Andre was Jean Ferret, the lumberjack character.
2: Right. I would bet so. Maybe earlier in his career when he was not all that big, maybe in Europe he got slammed. But at at least in, you know, in North America, I I would bet that Don Leo was the first.
0: I have that photo uh, one of my correspondents from my newsletter sent me of... uh, Andre, it was Monster Rusimov. I forget if it was the IWE promotion, standing there with Carl Gotch on one side, Billy Robinson on the other. They finessed him, and that's when Carpentier, according to story Paul Vachon told me, they sent Carpentier to go sign Andre, bring him in. Much later, when he was already established, and Killer Kowalski and Don Leo, as these two big monsters were getting Andre over. I mean, who better than those two legends for Vince to take over and start touring Andre and promoting him? But um hey, well, Mike,
3: sure. it could be worse.
0: No, <laughs> yeah. that
3: could have been worse. It could have been beat by a midget in Memphis. But that's a whole <laughs> nother
0: Lonnie mean. Well, you, you, I'll, I'll ask Mike, Mike off air. If Lonnie started doing the Moondog gimmick before he then brought it to San Francisco, where he would eat goldfish, legit live goldfish, break glass, cut his chest open, chew on the glass. And then after he did that all there as an insane heel, he brought the whole gimmick to Los Angeles, became Roddy Piper's best friend until he died, you know, Zooming because those guys like Shibuya and Stato and Gorbin and Goliath guys, they were the first guys maybe ever in two major territories to main event and be tag champs at the same time in both territories. My primary, which was Los Angeles for Mike Bell, my secondary, which was Royce Shire, San Francisco area, et cetera. And then Lonnie and Piper did it in San Francisco and LA as singles, but they were teaming up like in LA, they were heels together at the same time, uh Lonnie was this ultimate baby face I think pretty much Pat had left or Roy had fired him or whatever but so Lonnie's like the ultimate baby face and now he's taking on the ultimate heel there in Piper but they're doing this at the same time so you know if you got Mike's if Mike had done his newsletter back then in the, whatever year 76 77 early 77 you would learn about all of this so uh, but one of the last thing in, in going is Lonnie was like as great as he was in the cam- in front of the cameras at KCOP, Michael LaBelle's Saturday night TV show with Dick Lane doing it. We had two shows, the Hispanic one that was syndicated around the U S from the Olympic, but from KCOP TV studios off Hollywood Boulevard in Fairfax was the Saturday night TV show with Jimmy Lennon senior and Dick Lane doing it. Does not get any better than that. So Lonnie in the back, would tell us these stories, and I took pictures of him. I have to dig up of Lonnie and his then wife. I don't know if it was his only wife in like 74 when he came in for us because he'd come in as a baby face like a decade before that in L.A. I forget who he was teaming with, Rocky Montero or somebody. But Lonnie told this one story right in front of his wife, so it was legit, that he pulled ribs on her, he would sometimes spit up, they're in bed together with the covers, and he'd spit a huge loogie up into the air. And to avoid it, she'd pull the covers over her head, and that's when he'd fart in the bed. And I forget what that's called. That has a name. I don't know if it's a Melvin or he, he called it's a name that the boys know. So I think Lonnie invented this as he did the moondog character that the moondogs in Memphis, the ones in the WWF would copy, etc. There was nobody like Lonnie Maine. So what a can't wait to, to actually read it when i find my copy i think everybody's going to want mike again it's on amazon.com hold it up again it's excitement in the air and it's an exciting book with total total legends all legends you really uh, i know everyone's going to enjoy it it's the holiday season it's hanukkah right now it'll be christmas and kwanzaa soon so mike any you want to plug anything else any charities or just of course the book excitement in the air
2: Yeah, the book's about all I have. (laughs) I appreciate the the opportunity to, to visit. Of course.
3: And on that note, cheers. Yeah.
0: and you are listening to Crazy Train Radio. Woo-woo!